Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice, and I'm joined by Haven Pell, who is found at the Pundificator on his blog and other social media outlets. We are in the midst of an interesting time now. It's now March 22nd, and we are in the midst of sort of the transition in the coronavirus lockdown here in New York and across the country. And that's brought up a bunch of different points that I thought Haven and I would talk about a little bit. To wit, we also did a little reading in the New York Times about people who are being a part of the social distancing and a lot of the suggestions there, but also trying to do things for their own purposes, and that that might be coming into conflict. Haven, what did you read in the Times, and what are you seeing? And I guess before that, stay healthy and continue to do what you need to do to stay away from the virus. Thank you, Fraser, and I hope you're doing the same. The story that caught my eye is by John Branch, and John Branch is normally a sports writer, and so, of course, he doesn't he kind of has to be writing about some other things. And I think he wrote, he gathered up some very interesting information under the subject, under the title, Deniers and Disbelievers, colon, if I get corona, I get corona. And he has a whole series of anecdotes gathered perhaps by himself and by other Times reporters from all over the country of people who seem to be coming up with different answers as to activities that are essential. So one of the things that I have looked around and tried to decipher for everyone who asks me and loved ones and so on in New York anyway, is what are we going to be able to do in the coming weeks? And what aren't we going to be able to do? And of course, I'm no virus scientist, nor am I a policymaker. Governor Cuomo has been doing a very good job in terms of communicating what New York is looking like, but it's tough to look more than a few days ahead on any one such thing. The best thing I can really describe is an anecdote as it relates to Trader Joe's, which is one of many supermarkets here that are open and continue to be open. It sounds like we'll continue to be open going forward. What started out a few days ago is a bit of a bum rush for most people to go into these grocery stores and sort of load up the cart and get 10 rolls of toilet paper and 50 sets of paper towels and so on has gotten into a much more graduated and modulated pacing where Trader Joe's sort of takes pains to create lines outside of the grocery store so that they have a sort of a maximum occupancy so people can stay six feet away and that it's a much more controlled environment. Definite increase in the number of masks and gloves, even though they aren't available. I was able to come across a set of 50 latex gloves, which will probably last for a while, but most people are very diligent on the glove front in particular, and if they don't have masks, they run around with scarves, and that's something that I've seen in particular, and I've adopted myself to try to be positive on these things. But that's just one anecdote amongst many. What are you seeing at your end? I look at it and say New York has been fairly cordial so far. I think it's a ghost town. People are trying to sort of help out on the restaurant front, even though they're closed, by going up and ordering takeout and doing that on a piecemeal basis. But I don't see as much of the hoarding as I think probably exists in the rest of the country. It's interesting. You mentioned Trader Joe's and limiting the number of people who are in the store at any one time. Yesterday, I went for a walk. There's a park 
it's more than a park. It is a very woodsy area that you can take an hour and a half walk. And it's not just walking around the reservoir in Central Park. It's a bigger park than that. And I ran into a friend and I saw him and I greeted him. And I would say I stood 10, 15 feet away from him. And we had a conversation. And he said that he had been at Whole Foods, which in addition to trying to limit the number of people in the store at any one time, has a one hour period at the beginning of the day that is reserved for people who are 65 and over. And he went to that the other day and it was at seven o'clock in the morning. And unfortunately, it was also when the employees were stocking the shelves. And so that was, there were big, more than grocery carts, the carts that they use for the products when they're being put on the shelves rather than taken off. And he said the place was absolutely jammed and that so many people who were more than 65 were getting there at seven o'clock hoping for an empty store. And it actually went in exactly the opposite direction. It was more crowded than ever. So he thought he was not going to do that again. Maybe that'll settle out, but it didn't seem to be as effective when they tried it. When you were talking to your friend in the park and you had kept your safe distance, did you feel like the park was getting used a lot or less? I've seen, at least in New York, over the course of the past week, whether it's Central Park or the sidewalks, it's gradually become less and less populated, I think, as people are sort of gearing up for the week and sort of understanding what their sort of the ramifications of trying to keep a safe distance and so on. But interesting to hear what's happening down in D.C. on that. Yesterday's experience was interesting. I mentioned the one friend. And then probably 15 minutes later, continuing in the walk, I ran into another friend. And so he and I also had a conversation standing a good distance apart and no greetings, verbal greetings, but no handshaking, nothing like that. And in the ordinary course of in a month of doing pretty much the same 90 minute walk, I don't do it every day, but on the days that I do a walk, that's the one I pretty much do. And I would say 90% of the time, I run into nobody. So to have a situation where I ran into two people would be quite a number of standard deviations off the norm. I would also say today, my wife and I rode our bikes and we took off. There's a ride that you can do where roads are closed and different things. And we're pretty used to doing that. We've done it a lot of times. And it was a nice day today. It wasn't particularly warm. It was in the 40s. And the place was jammed. Parking lots that normally have the occasional space, the most desirable parking lot, maybe you don't get in that one. Most of the time you do, but sometimes maybe you don't. And that completely full, plus about three parking lots before it and about three after it were all completely full. And there was a quieter period at lunchtime and during nap time, but sort of from 11 to 12 and after three, the population was extremely high. And that I found to be surprising. Well, I can tell you, you know, being here in New York and whether you've got small apartments or other cramped environments, people are, I think, climbing up the walls 
And also you don't have your gym available to you. And so people walking around and doing things doesn't surprise me. So you've got this weird natural tension where you've got joggers and people going for walks and so on. And in the face of what's going to be a lockdown where they say essentially no essential travel, I look at that and say, there's got to be some give and take where people are allowed to get up and walk around and go 20 blocks north or south and go back just to loosen the legs up. Or we could see a spontaneous increase in the divorce rate or murder rate for people who've kind of had it in close quarters with their families. That sounds like that's borne out by people making use of the parks. Absolutely. And I think that the mandate always seems to be essential travel. Okay, fair enough. I get that. And yet it becomes up to the individual to define essential. Is it essential to all people? Or is it just, this is essential to me? I mean, there are lots of people who believe that it's a great idea to get outdoors, to be in the sunlight, and so forth. On our bike ride today, we ran into my trainer and her husband. And we stopped and with our bikes, and we all stood a good distance apart and chatted for probably about 20 minutes. And there's no question that she viewed what I was doing as an essential part of my overall well-being, even in this period of social isolation. So I thought it was a good thing to do today. We were able to stay a fair distance apart. I don't know that it's as easy to look at the picture on the article that we referenced earlier and see people shoulder to shoulder walking up and down Bourbon Street in New Orleans, drinking beers and red solo cups. That's maybe one person's essential is different from another's. Well, and in that case, we talked about it certainly earlier in the week when the meme or the little video clip of the guy down in Florida was saying, you know, I'm coming down and Corona is not going to affect me and I'm going to party if I want to. It's that, that type of thing that really causes a lot of damage, it sounds like. And interested in your take on where that comes out, especially when we see younger people for whom this virus seems to discriminate for versus older people for whom it discriminates against. What are your thoughts on that as far as sort of the younger generation not really, I guess, pitching in to the public health debate? And is it does this speak to larger things about not only millennials or and younger being invincible, but maybe a larger mindset that they have that things don't apply to them anymore? It's interesting. I suppose it is a near certainty that there would be people who still thought spring break in Florida was pretty important. And that obviously looks bad for that whole cohort. Maybe it was an anecdote that was found only with a very small number of people who happened to be look pretty crowded on, on a beach in Florida, but the look was bad. And I think that John Branch, the author of the article, went and found a, quite a number of examples that ranged from things that probably everybody would think was ridiculous. I would say my league leader was a strip club that stayed open and people were still having lap dances. That strikes me as pretty hard to justify on any sort of an essential standard. I think any sort of normal person would agree with that. And at the same time, I think a scary thing to me, and I think that we're not really tapping into yet, and I'm not sure we're going to see it yet until April 1st or maybe that first week in April, is this whole work from home phenomenon, which I think has sort of extended the la-la land mental environment for a lot of people. 
when they're able to get on Zoom conferences and quote unquote be productive, I have trouble believing that that's going to last for a long time. And for the freelance community, for whom it looks like the economic damage is going to be massive, I think this is all going to hit home on April 1st when the rent is due and people are either getting used to a non-paycheck environment or to a slow pay environment or to a potentially a economic layoff environment. And I see the potential for people who feel put upon already to really feel put upon when the pressure starts to mount economically. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I hope is something that is good that comes from this period of our lives is I hope we get a whole lot better at remote working. And there are lots of components to it. Obviously, Zoom chats and so forth are very helpful. And I can't imagine what we're doing right now in the way we live if we didn't have the internet. I mean, if this had happened in 1990, before internet was quite widespread, people really would have been isolated, much as they would have been in the Spanish flu in 1918, or maybe even in the bubonic plague in the 1300s. So I think we're very fortunate to have a a lot of resources that we wouldn't have had in other times. And I hope that a lot of creative entrepreneurs use this as a moment to advance their thinking on remote work, because it's not only having people work from home, it's being able to spread employment across the country and not just in the top five or 10 cities. Great point there. And I'm going to throw a little nuance into it a little bit. I had a discussion with a friend of mine talking about commercial real estate and the sort of knee-jerk reaction of both of us was, oh my gosh, people are going to rethink how many people they need to have. They're going to rethink the staffing needs and so on. People will be able to either work from home or work two or three days from home and then two days back in the office. Now that we're about a week into it, and I think if we get into a period of time where it turns into months, I'm adjusting my thinking on that a little bit. And I think there might be a real desire for people to want to get out of the house and have a place to go. And so much like you say, I think the idea of working differently and working remotely and spreading the employment across the country, I think that's going to have an interesting impact where the idea of having these gigantic office parks where you have to be there from Monday through Friday, nine to five, and occupy a desk in order to sort of prove that you're productive and so on, that's going to change. But I'm not in a hurry to say that there's going to be a huge exodus to having everybody working from home four or five days a week, and you come in and play tag and touch a desk and then run back out with every meeting being remote. I think there's going to be a happy medium in there somewhere. And you're right. I think somebody smart, I think some interesting workflow designers and HR people, et cetera, there's a real opportunity to to make some real headway with business as to how to work smarter. We had the sort of idea, the Bloomberg idea that instead of individual offices, everybody works in a bullpen. And that's had, I'd say, mixed results and a lot of revisionist history around it. I think there's going to be a lot of head scratching and saying, do we really need any office space going forward? And I could imagine the pendulum swings too far in one direction and then swings back once everybody's ready to pull their hair out or strangle their employee friends across the internet when the Zoom link goes down. I think my hope for remote work is more to be able to say that a tech company can have an office in Omaha, Nebraska, or can have an office in Nashville or Cincinnati, 
and that it is not disadvantageous to the people who work in that office in a different city, that it's not disadvantageous, both from a personal perspective, that they are receiving the social positives of going to work, but they are also not losing out on the opportunity to advance their careers. And the fact that you are in Nashville doesn't mean that you can't be the CEO of the company or move up to being the next promotion that you'd like to have. But I don't think we we know how to do that yet. I don't think we've seen how to create those opportunities where people show themselves to be talented. And who knows? I mean, maybe some system will develop that is going to reward a different kind of talent. And I don't know. Well, and I think the importance of social interaction and in-person interaction, while it's going to be put up for debate currently, is going to, I think there's going to be a real importance placed on it. And then it's going to lead to balance. I think that the workforce was already in the mode where you didn't necessarily have to be in Japan in order to do the deal in Japan for one thing or the other, but it certainly helps being over there or having someone who can speak the language and know the customs The interpersonal relationship, I think, will continue to thrive. It's just going to have to be dealt with differently. And I look at it and I think about all the conferences and business travel and people are looking at it going, did I really need to do any of that? Or could this have all been done by remote? I think there's going to be an overreaction in one direction there, but I think it could go back in some ways to the world where personal relationships and do I dare say handshakes mean something. Sure. I mean, you look at something huge like the Consumer Electronics Show. And yes, there are people who have created a new product and they want to have a booth and it's pretty expensive to do that. And they want to have a whole lot of people come and see what it is that they're doing, whether it's a wearable device or whether it's a gaming platform or any number of other things. And there they all are. But there's an element of it that is also useful for attracting funding. And there is an element of it that is clearly a job fair. And if you say we're not going to do the consumer electronics show anymore, then you need to figure out a way to create that marketplace, you know, not dissimilar from the buttonwood tree where the New York Stock Exchange got created. You still need to create that marketplace, and that is going to involve personal interaction. Well, I think, too, this underscores in some ways what I think is going to be the increased value in online presence, certainly in the short term, where people are going to be working more sort of remotely online through Zoom and other teleconferencing situations. That value of being able to be compelling in that format has just gone way up after this episode. And so I think those people who hopefully like us and others who are practicing social media types of components and other people who are media friendly and able to speak in public and so on. While it's always been important, I think it's vastly important now. And much like there was a certain value to doing well on radio and then on TV and then you know as you go through onto the computer and then having compelling content on the phone, I think there's going to be some real rethinking on that as we look forward. Is there a difference between having a presence in person and having a presence on camera? My guess is there is. Maybe there's some correlation between those two, but maybe there are some people that are really better at one than the other and vice versa. 
No question about that. Another quick thing. I read somewhere where Stanford was not going to be rebating to students the balance of their tuition as everything is going online. And I guess part of that is also the room and board component. And, you know, they're not allowed to have kids or they're not having kids come back to campus. That's another area where I think Stanford's example is a little bit tone deaf, I suppose. But the idea that if online business suddenly translates to online learning, there are going to be some real winners and losers in that space. I think the Stanford's and Harvard's and Yale's and other high endowment places will figure it out and be okay. But there are going to be some places now where kids are in college right now and are hearing, you know what, I'm taking these classes online and I'm paying $70,000 to not have the campus experience. Of course, this is no one's fault. But what am I paying for? And I could see this having a real ripple effect in that collegiate environment. If you like, we can do a podcast on the thesis that I've had for a long time, that the most important department in any college is the admissions department. And what they are creating is essentially the on-campus experience, and that's what they're selling. And of course, you could attend lectures online. Absolutely. You could have your papers graded online. Absolutely. But the experience of interacting with other people at lunch and all that sort of thing is pretty important, too. And I'm not sure the colleges are wild to confess that that's the case, but I think they know it. I'm very surprised that Stanford, if they're not refunding room and board, I believe Harvard is refunding room and board. And I think that that's important because they don't have to provide it. Now, as a landlord, they're not getting any return on those dormitories. But at least on the board side, they're not buying all the pizzas that they're feeding to the college students. So it seems to me that it'll be interesting to see whether Stanford really gets away with that or not. I have to think optics-wise that that's going to come back and bite them in one way, shape, or form. Now, of course, they can survive it, and I'm sure that's fine. But as we talked about before with some of the people grouping together, whether at mountaintops in California or in parks in group settings or Bourbon Street, it's a bad look. So as we go back to John Branch's article here, what else have we missed here? I mean, again, I'm struck by the person who said, you know, if I get corona, I get corona, which seems to be sort of a foible of youth, but also just real irresponsible in terms of trying to be a good citizen, a good public health citizen. And I guess people just don't understand. I don't want to get sick and I don't want to make you sick. And it seems to me it would take a special person to say, oh, no, 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 it's so much more important for me not to make you sick than not to get sick myself. I wish I could say I was that person, but I mean, I'm trying to be attentive to both. At my age, no, I really don't want to get sick. My odds are not that. There is nothing that I willingly do that includes an 8% chance of death. And if I know that the chances are 8% of dying, I don't do it. I don't ski that way. I think about skiing. I say to myself, ski to ski another day. So it's different, I suppose, if you're 22 and your odds, if you should happen to get the coronavirus, your odds of dying at that age are 0.1%. Well, they probably don't have to worry very much, but we'll never know who gives it to whom. But I do 
think that that's also a factor. I mean, there's some things that were surprising, but I think they were only surprising for me from a cultural perspective. And one of the things that happens here in Washington is the cherry blossoms. And the cherry blossoms are very definitely a deeply important concept in Japan, also elsewhere in Asia. And so the early spring, going to see the cherry blossoms and to have splendid close-up pictures of yourself in your wedding dress taken with cherry trees behind you, that's very important to some people. If it isn't important to you, it's easy to say, well, why is anybody doing that? But obviously, if it is important to you, then you say, oh, well, this is absolutely essential. It just happens to be essential to me. And it was a surprise. One of the bike rides that we do is near where the cherry trees blossom, and we're not going to do that for the next probably two weeks while that season is in play because there's just too many people there. Right. On a final tangent here. How are you receiving your information about this episode? So I was talking to my girlfriend and others, and I said, look, you can't be watching the news all the time. You're going to be going crazy. And so the way we've kind of figured it out is to take half an hour to watch Lester Holt, who's a fairly trusted guy at NBC, go through things for half an hour to kind of get the lay of the land. I've got my phone geared up for Wall Street Journal alerts so that if something is important and extremely newsworthy, I'll see it. But I find that, you know, I'm trying to get away from Twitter and social media and all these other things, some things that I enjoy, but trying to get away from it all to try to maintain sanity and to try to stay productive. How are you going about this process? Well, one rule of thumb that I find to be helpful, I don't know, somebody may come up with a better one or tell me why this is not right. But If I am listening to a particular subject, I would like to hear about it from a professional in that field. So if I'm listening to or if I'm curious about something that relates to the stock market, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You're a professional. I'd like to hear what an analyst has to say. I'd like to hear what somebody who has been through several of these difficult market situations before. I don't want to hear a politician describing a securities analyst's opinion. I don't need the political spin of one side would like the market to go down, the other side would like the market to go up. I don't need that extra spin. If it's something that relates to public health, I don't want a political spin on top of it. I would love to hear from the public health professional. I'll have a look at the way he looks when he's making his presentation and hope that he's not being excessively interested by political interests that may be standing next to him. But I'm really trying hard to only hear from professionals in the field about a specific subject. I mean, if somebody's going to try to explain statistics to me, how about a statistician? Or how about an epidemiologist? Those are the things that I'm aiming for rather than commentators. Well, and like all good communication, anybody who can break down complex systems into language that we can all access, that's important too. And I find in many ways, you know, whether it's Lester Holt or some of the people that they bring on, many of the traditional media have done a pretty good job when you sort of pun intended quarantine your media to trusted sources and compact sources, that they do a good job of finding people who can boil difficult, complex concepts down to sort of simpler language that we can all access. 
none of us, or maybe some people are, I assuredly am not an expert in all things. I may not be an expert in anything, but sometimes we just have to depend on someone to explain it to us. And in that sense, I'm always very keen on finding the person that's going to give me a fair explanation with my interest at heart, a person who's at least appears to be trying to help me to understand something rather than to convince me of something he wants me to understand. Great point. Well, let's end it there. Let's you and I and all of our listeners and communities try to stay healthy and get to the other side of this. And in the meantime, great speaking with you, Haven. Terrific, Fraser. And be well. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.